You're listening to a Cripple and Co. production. Well, hello there, Disability After Dark listeners, and welcome to the very first episode of this new little side project that I wanted to do on Disability After Dark called Popcorn and Power Chairs, where I simply sit with you folks and I watch a movie with you about disability and we talk about it. You've heard a version of this when I when I have done Great Flicks and Joysticks, but I wanted to do this more regularly and more properly and more as its own little series within a series. You know how I love doing that on this show. So every week that you don't hear a regular Disability After Dark episode, you will hear a Popcorn and Power Chairs because I love disability-themed media and I love talking about it and I love dissecting it and thinking about it and reviewing it and doing all those things. So that is what this is, and I cannot wait to do this with you. So get comfy, cozy, cribbled, and get your popcorn ready, because we're about to do the first episode of Popcorn Power Chairs, where we shine a light, a spotlight, on disability film. Before we jump into the film that I want to review today, I also want to give a mention that this episode and this, the title of this series was not my own. I have to give homage and props to my late friend, Anthony McAuliffe, who passed away about a year ago, who he was the one that came up with this name. He was the one that uh, really brought this name to to life. So I, I have to, I can't say that I came up with it. He he was the brilliant mind that in that did this show, or did this title of the show. So I want to thank him for coming up with it, and I use the name completely in his honor. But now, let's get started with Popcorn Power Chairs. For this first go-round, I wanted to look at a very popular film that depicted somebody with a disability, a very famous person with disabilities, and I wanted to look at The Theory of Everything, starring Eddie Redmayne, who, who is playing the famed physicist Stephen Hawking. So, let's play the trailer, and then we'll give you some facts about the movie, and then we'll start the movie itself. Here we go. Come on, get up. Morning, Brian. Stephen, are you aware that you voluntarily embarked upon a PhD in physics? Hello. Hello. Science. Arts. I'm a cosmologist. What's that? I study the marriage of space and time. The perfect couple. One never knows from where the next great leap forward is going to come, or from whom. What if I reverse time to see what happened at the beginning of time itself? Wind back the clock. Wind back the clock. Keep going. I don't know how. Yet. Rewinding! Where's you? It's called motor neuron disease. Life expectancy is two years. I want us to be together for as long as we've got. It'll affect everything. You don't realize what lies ahead. This is going to be a very heavy defeat. I love him, and he loves me. 
going to fight this illness together. Good luck. Hi. I'm okay. So, this black hole at the beginning of time. Brilliant. Brilliant, Stephen. Well done, Doctor. He has pneumonia. The only way he will survive will be to give him a tracheotomy. He will never speak again. Yes, he will. My name is Stephen Hawking. It's American. Is that a problem? It has been a great joy to watch this man defy every expectation, both scientific and personal. There should be no boundaries to human endeavor. However bad life may seem, while there is life, there is hope. Thank you. Sir, did you say something? I said, thank you. So, lights, camera, disability, let's crack on into it. I The very first scene in the movie, the very first scene, the very thing you see when the movie starts, and if you're watching along, this is at like one second, you see a silhouette of a man in a wheelchair and his family walking down a corridor. You don't know who they are, you don't really know what's going on, but because you sort of already know the movie's about Stephen Hawking, you kind of know where this is where you're headed but I love the the very first shot is of somebody in a wheelchair and the very first thing you see is a wheelchair and as a disabled person using a power wheelchair I always get I have two feelings about this when I see this on film I get excited because I finally see a representation of disability of myself a little bit and I'm like oh how are they going to do this and I kind of get excited to see where they'll go with it and how they'll work that through but then I'm also so trepidatious because I'm like, oh, fuck, how are they going to do this now? How are they going to how are they going to minimize or destroy disability in this film for this audience? What are they going to say that's incorrect? And those are the feelings that I have whenever I see a disabled person on the screen. And I'm pretty sure that I have mentioned this before because I definitely feel that way. When I watch Disabled Film. And we've done it on other versions of this show. And I've definitely talked about it before. You're just so worried about where they're going to take disability tropes. What are they going to do to pander to an audience. And the minute you see disability as a disabled person on screen. That can be one of the two feelings you have. So we are immediately transported back to Cambridge, England in 1963. To see Stephen Hawking played by Eddie Redmayne. And I have trepidations about Eddie Redmayne playing this character because he also played a trans woman in The Dutch Girl. And I feel like there's a problem with that. I don't, I don't love that that happened. So should Eddie Redmayne really be playing a disabled person? No. Like, how many costumes of real people in real lives do you want to put on, Eddie? Feels weird. Don't love it. But he he played... Stephen Hawking, and it, and again I say to this, why can't they cast a disabled actor? Why, why, why? Please cast a disabled actor. I've said this before, if they can do 
if they can do CGI of disability, why can't they do CGI of ability levels? Why can't they have a wheelchair user look like they're walking? It can be done. Why can't we do that? Have a disabled actor in the role. That's what I think. Then we see Stephen flirting awkwardly with a girl at a party. Her name's Jane, and she gives him her number, and they kind of flirt a little bit more. And the next scene we see is Stephen in school prepping for a test with his chums. And one of his friends says, Oh man, I think this test is going to hospitalize me. And I just, for some reason, when he said hospitalize me, my brain immediately went to, Oh, how foreshadowy is this? Considering that Stephen Hawking is about to go through getting sick. How weird it is that they put that in there. And how kind of how funny it is that they put it in there. And then I thought about some of the language that we use around disability. When we talk about things that we're afraid of, people will say, I have crippling anxiety. People will say, I'm crippled by this. How many things we use around disability to mean problematic. And that's what this, that's what this scene made me think of. And it just made me think of the foreshadowing of what was to come for the character. So then, as we often do in movies about about disabled people that become disabled, we see many, many scenes that illustrate Stephen is active. He's rowing with his friends on the rowing team. He's at the pub with his friends laughing a lot. He goes out and he does stuff. And this, I feel, will be juxtaposed with him getting sicker later in the film. And, spoiler alert, I wasn't wrong. Then, as the movie starts, we start to see little signs of Stephen's illness. We see him spill a coffee cup in one of their very first scenes. We see him have trouble picking up a pen. We see him stumbling to walk, and his friends saying stuff like, Oi, what's wrong with you, man? Um, and we see all those things throughout the film at the beginning to kind of denote to the audience that illness is coming. And I always find it funny the way movies do this, to denote that illness is coming, like, oh, here's a little sign, here's a little sign, and yes, it can be that way, and it can be gradual like that, but also for a lot of us, one day you wake up and you can't do this thing anymore. For instance, I woke up one day and I couldn't pee by myself anymore, and that wasn't gradual, that was like overnight, so sometimes that's true of those little moments, and sometimes it's way bigger than I think people realize and I think both of those things should be shown in film um, so then we see all those little signs and um, Stephen invites Jane over for lunch and they start courting and at this point he's very visibly not ill yet totally fine can totally speak by himself no problem and I wondered watching this I wondered how many how very different the scene of he and her sitting at the dinner at the lunch table would be if he had courted her and he was already disabled. How she might have treated him if she had noticed he was already disabled and what she might have been acting like had she seen he already was disabled. And there's a scene later in the film that I'll discuss about that where it is a little bit sort of like that, which, which I'll talk about later, but it, it's there. But I wonder when I watch this very first scene of them together how she might have acted had he already been sick. Then we see Jane and Stephen get closer and build a bond and, and become friends. And you can see their romance kind of blossoming a little bit. 
And again, we see him stumbling to do something, and a friend says, Hey man, what's wrong with you? What's going on? And I all I could think was, how many of us disabled, chronically ill folks know that phrase all too well? Or know when someone says to us, like, hey, what's wrong with you? What's going on? And how quickly you jump to defense if you want to hide that. You don't want to share what's going on, or you're afraid to. But we've all heard somebody say, hey, what's what's wrong with you? Is something wrong? What's going on? And it's such a hard phrase to wrap my head around as a disabled person, because I'm like, how many hours do you have? How many hours do you want me to highlight what's actually wrong with me? Because I could tell you a whole bunch of things. And then from there, we see that Stephen's ability to write legibly when he's in courses for physics and stuff is becoming more apparent. We see him kind of like writing, but it's becoming qu quite noticeable that his writing is not as legible as before. And I, I thought this was a funny scene to watch because I have cerebral palsy and I write, if you were to give me a pen and paper and say write, I kind of write like a toddler. I write like a four-year-old and I am f almost 40 and I can cannot write legibly in any way, thank goodness for computers. But I thought it was totally kind of fun that he wrote illegibly because I do too. And I'm sure any of us with motor stuff or neurological stuff will relate to what it's like to not actually be able to handwrite legibly. And I know I just noticed that in the scene and something that I wanted to talk about a little bit. Because I write I definitely write like a toddler and that's okay. And then one of the next scenes is that Steven notices a tremor in his hand which he has been trying to ignore and try not to notice, I think. Uh, and how many times of how many times have we as disabled people played that game? The game of, hmm, if I just ignore it, it'll go away and I'll be fine. Right? I'll be totally fine. I certainly play that game with every new symptom or worry that I have as my disability progresses and as my disability changes and as the shape of my disability becomes something different, I certainly have have played the if I just don't think about it it'll be fine yeah not always the case but I think we've all been there and we can all attest to feeling that way in one way or another the next big scene that highlights Steven's disability is he's walking on campus and he falls flattened on his face and becomes unconscious and it's a very, like, it's a very, like, set-up scene. So he's walking, he's walking, and all of a sudden he falls. And the music swells a little bit, and he can't hear things. And people are like, oh, my goodness, we need to help him. And you can, they're basically saying that this is the moment that the disability really, truly has struck him. And we, the audience is like, oh, no, something is happening. Oh, no. And, you know, I think those scenes in these movies like that, can be really jarring and that's why people think that something big and dramatic has to happen all the time but sometimes disability isn't like that then there's a very jarring scene of him being examined by the doctor poked and prodded very medicalized super stark lighting in this scene and it, for anybody who, who's dealt with medical stuff or medical trauma this scene was hard to watch and I can't imagine what it would be like for somebody with CP or LAS in the 40s, 50s, or 60s. 
Um, I can't imagine without our modern technology, which already has a ton of problems for people with disabilities, I can't imagine how it would have been some generations ago to go in hospitals and need support and have nothing really modernized to get that for you. It would probably be really scary to go in a hospital and have a motor neuron disease like Stephen Hawking in the 60s and the 70s and have to deal with that. It's probably really, really scary. So then Stephen's in the hospital realizing that his body isn't working the way he expects it to. How many of us have been in, in that situation where we're in the hospital bed and we're like, why doesn't my body do this? And he, at one point he says, why won't my body, why won't it, why doesn't it do this? And he talks about that. Um, the doctor telling Stephen about his motor neuron disease, the look on his face is one that I can relate to so very much. The look on Stephen's face is one that I can relate to very much. When I, I felt that way when I lost the ability to go to the bathroom to pee by myself. Like, what the fuck is happening? You can't be serious that I'm going to lose this ability, right? You can't be serious that I'm not going to be able to do this anymore, right? And the doctor says at the time that the average life expectancy for somebody with Stephen's condition was two years. And then the doctor very plainly and coldly says, there's nothing I can do for you. This was really kind of tough for me because we've all heard doctors do this. We've all heard doctors say, oh, well, that's it. That's all we can do. And I think that's really troubling that this, the way the medical industrial complex treats us is like, oh, there's nothing. We've done our best. Best of luck to you. Live your life for however long as you got. And that can be really hard. The next scene is Stephen tells his friend Brian about the disease. He says, I have two years to live. His friend Brian is understandably confused, upset, angry, concerned. And there was something I found interesting about this scene because you can see that in this scene, as Stevens telling his friend about his illness and his disability, you can see that he's managing his friend's feelings about the disability and his friend's emotions and not really delving into his own. And I feel like... I feel like we've all done that too. I mean, there's so many similarities here because I feel like we've all, as as disabled folks, and especially severely disabled folks like me, um, we've all had to manage our friends' emotions to make sure that they were okay around our disability and we haven't really looked into how we're really feeling or had the time to consider our own feelings about disability. And so I've definitely been in that situation myself where I've, wanted to make sure my friend was okay, and I didn't really care about how I was feeling. I wanted to make sure that the people around me were propped up and not scared of my disability and not scared of me. And so I certainly understand how Steven's feelings, and he keeps saying to his friend, like, it's okay, don't worry, mate, it'll be all right. And you can just see he's trying to make sure his friend is okay, and his friend is not going to leave him, and his friend's not going to disappear. So then Stephen's friend Brian tells Jane about Stephen's illness and about the disability, and he doesn't really go to see her. He kind of walls away in his own little world, and he won't see her, and he won't return her calls, and he won't really talk to her because obviously he's going through disability grief about having this motor neuron disease and, and 
what it means for his life and clearly he should go through this and clearly this is important um, and he needs to, to process this and he needs time and so when Jane finally does go to see him he makes a lot of jokes to cope he tells her that he that she just missed the real Steven that he's gone away somewhere he's not there anymore and he makes a bunch of, of silly jabs at himself to make her comfortable and I, you know I think we've all done that we played the the game where if I make light of this, the tragedy and the realness of what I'm experiencing might not be so big if I just, if I, if I make a joke. And I think the humor that we all use as disabled people to get by, um, it can be really hard to, to put that on all the time. And I have trouble keeping that up a lot, especially as I get older. When I was younger though, in my twenties, I would constantly make jokes about my disability, um, to put other people at ease, but it, it, there's always a biting edge to that humor, and it's never really, it's never really fun to do. You always do it hoping that the other person will laugh, and they'll be okay to break the tension. Stephen tells her that she should go, she should leave him, that he, she should just leave, he doesn't want her there anymore, and Jane says, if you don't get up and play a game with me, I won't come back here ever. She says this like really firmly and sternly. And I can understand why she's telling him this. She wants to motivate him. She wants to um, get him to you know get over himself and, and move on. But hearing the line made me think, and when I was watching this, I couldn't help but think, is he not allowed to wallow? Can he not have grief for one moment about this new diagnosis, this new scary thing that he and he alone in his body will be forced to navigate and forced to think about and forced to do. Um, and I just wish that these movies would stop making the able-bodied people still the protagonist and the one that's like, you have to do it for me because you love me. Get up. Don't be as disabled as you need to be. Just get up. And it's like, well, what if he doesn't want to get up? What if he wants to grieve? How, how do we... But how do we show this disability grief in film without necessarily turning off an audience and making it some inspirational tale? Um, because the way Jane tells him to get up is like, you're going to get up and you're going to beat this and you're going to blah, blah. And it's it was frustrating for me as a severely disabled person to watch. So he says, fine, I'll get up and I'll play. She asks him to play croquet with her of course she wants him to play croquet how british are they um and so he gets up to play croquet with her and you see him like fumbling with the ball a bit and moving around and wobbling as he walks and you can see jane taking in his new reality his new life and the way it's gonna be of course the scene is thick with big dramatic move music where jane is sobbing at, at how he can't move or do certain things and it's funny how diagnoses or illness like this become more about the people in your life and around you and how they perceive you more than you sometimes there were so many scenes in this film that highlighted Jane and how Jane felt about Stephen and how Jane was feeling about Stephen and not so much about how Stephen was feeling about Stephen 
I have certainly felt that way um, about my neurologic bowel disorder that I have, which I thought was IBS, and I just discovered is neuro is neurologic bowel fun for me, or not neurologic? I'm sorry, I'm saying our neurogenic bowel. Um, I have that now, fun for me, uh, and so m- many people with CP do fun for us. Uh, but I felt that way when it comes to those disabilities and how other people will perceive me in the world with what I have. And and I think a lot of us feel that way with our disabilities sometimes. What is the outward version of this that we want to show other people? And what is the truth of it behind closed doors? So Stephen is angry and begs Jane to leave and says, please go. I only have two years to live and that's it. And then, then whatever else happens, happens. And he says to her, it will affect everything. You don't know what's coming. And you know what? I, I felt akin to this also again because I have certainly pushed people away or canceled plans or said no to things because of this feeling because I don't want them to experience Whatever it is that I'll have to experience, I don't want them to see me at my lowest, so I don't tell them certain things. And I wonder, um, well, have you done this as as partners or friends? Have you, listener, pushed people away, or have you felt this way about those things? Write in to me at andrewandandrewgerza.com and tell me your reactions to to not only the film as a whole, but also the feeling of, have you pushed someone away? I'd love to hear from you. And then the next scene is, Stephen's father is sitting with Jane, and he tries to dissuade Jane from seeing him. He warns her to be careful, because Stephen's life will be hard and short, because the weight of science says so. And as I was watching this scene, I was thinking, how many parents, thinking they were doing a good thing for their child, have told a a potential non-disabled partner to leave their child alone because their child's disabled life is going to be too hard and you can't deal with that, so you should go live your life. I'm sure that so many parents of disabled children and disabled people have done this and have felt this way. And I kind of thought it was important that they put it in the film. And if your parents ever did this and ever told a potential partner to go away because of your disability and how hard it would be for them, I'd love to hear about that too. In this scene though, in response to that, Jane tells Stephen's dad that she loves him and that they are going to fight the illness together. They're going to fight it together. They're going to be, they're going to to do this together. And it always sounds weird to me, as somebody born with my disability, this urgency to fight. I don't really have an urgency to fight. I simply want to live in my disabled body, and I want to have disabled joy in my body, even when it it is extremely, unbearably hard for me to do so. And she was like, we're going to fight, we're going to get through this together. All the things you would say, but I don't know, and I think this is different for individuals who acquire their physical disability later in life. I think, you know, we're taught to fight. 
But when you're born disabled, there really isn't there really isn't this like drive to continually fight because this is all you've ever known. Disability is all you've ever known. So why would you fight it? It's baked into who you are. At least that's how I feel. If you are if you have a different opinion, do tell me. I'd love to hear. So then we flash forward a bunch a bunch of scenes to them to Jane and Stephen getting married. We see Stephen using a cane at the wedding, which I felt was particularly important because the imagery of somebody using a mobility aid and getting married is um is quite rare and I think that it was so important to see that. Now obviously I know that in the UK where this is based, now they have marriage laws around benefits, but I guess in the in the sixties and seventies they didn't have this. So good for you, Stephen. Get married. We see the birth of his kids and how they are settling into married life. And we see Jane taking on a role of a caretaker for him and really providing that care for him daily. We then go into a scene where he we see that his disability progressed. He's using crutches now. And he sits with the academic board and he is made a doctor. I thought that was really cool because it shows a disabled person in higher education doing great things and I thought that was really a cool scene to have in there. When do we hear about disabled doctors, even PhD doctors? Never. He then talks to the board about one simple equation to explain everything and all I could think when I was watching this scene was wouldn't it be great if we had an equation to explain disability? We had, we had a scientific equation to show what disability was somewhere. Because then everybody would stop saying that we're disabled because we've sinned. We're disabled because we're miracles. We're disabled because blah, blah, blah. We would have actual equations to show disability is a part of the world. Period. Look, the science says it is. Um, and I would love to have an equation like that. Then he's out to dinner with his friends and Stephen notices that it is difficult to hold the spoon and to hear things and he, it's getting harder and harder for him to do things. And when, he, when his mates ask him what's wrong, he says, oh no, I'm fine. I'm fine. And I think this scene will ring true to so many disabled folks watching, not wanting to be a problem in public or with friends. So you, again, you hide your illness, you hide what's happening you don't make it a big deal because you don't want them to be afraid of you. And he's in his house and he's going up his stairs and he can barely walk. And he it is overlaid with touching music and big, big music as his baby son sees him. And it just, it was to show that like, look, he's becoming really disabled for real now. And the next scene is Jane brings out a wheelchair, a manual wheelchair, and there's this big, long moment where Stephen quietly stares at the chair and has this moment of like, oh man, this is so scary. I'm not sure if I want to do this. And when he finally decides to sit in the chair, it makes a big, loud, clanging noise to denote to the audience 
how scary losing your mobility and losing your ability to walk must be. And I think this was totally done for dramatic effect because, well, I'm sure losing your ability to walk, for those of you who had your ability to walk, is scary. It certainly isn't as dramatic as this one scene seems to be. He then sits in the wheelchair and he tells his wife, Jane, that it's temporary, that he will not be in it forever, that it's fine. And I imagine never needing a wheelchair. It must have felt like a death sentence. And for some people who go from being ambulatory to needing a wheelchair, it might still feel that way. It might still feel like everything's going to change. And there, again, there's a grief associated with that. There's a grief associated with that big drastic swing from being able to walk to needing a mobility aid. There's a huge grief that comes with that. As I have needed a chair since I was four years old, to me, the wheelchair looks like freedom. It looks like something that I would want, I'm excited about because it's going to help me get around. And it's such a different and nuanced experience, congenital versus acquired, and I wish there were more nuances like that in film to readily explore this. Like, they should do a buddy, a buddy, buddy movie about an, a power wheelchair user and, and a, a manual wheelchair user and an acquired disability and a congenital disability. They should have, like, buddy movies about that because then we could talk about those differences on film and people could see that they are different experiences. They are something totally different and they can be respected and valued. At one point in one of the next scenes, Stephen's in bed. Presumably, Jane's helped him get there and has done his care for him. And he says, thank you, to her. And she replies, sorry, did you say something? As if to suggest he shouldn't dare say thank you, that she would do this for him because she loves him. Um, but I understand the reflex as a disabled person to say thank you. Because you are thankful. You're really thankful that someone's helped pull you to bed or wiped your ass or gotten you up or done something like that. You are so thankful and so grateful. You really are. And I am grateful every day for the help that I receive. But somewhere underneath all of that, you know and you feel that you are a burden to the caregiver. And you know that by saying thank you in some small way, some tiniest of ways, alleviates that... Oh, I burped. Sorry. It alleviates... No, I have the hiccups. So let's try again. You know that in some small way, it alleviates the the burden, the feeling of being a burden. If you just say thank you, it somehow, for a minute, makes you feel just a little better. And they're in bed, and there's a moment where they kiss, and you can tell they're going to have sex, and they cut away to another child being born. So you know that Stephen Hawking can have sex and can get off and can do all those things. And that's amazing. But I, as like a disabled critic and a disabled researcher, was like, I want to see this part on the film. I want to see how they would do this. And I want, I would want him, I would, I would have wanted Stephen to talk about how he felt about sex and intimacy now that his body and his ability level was drastically changing. I think, as somebody whose body and disability level has drastically changed, 
that he would have a ton of feelings around that, especially during the time period of the 60s and 70s and the way masculinity was so coded back then and so, like, affirmed back then by your virility and your manliness and all these things. And I'm sure he went through that. And I wish that the movie would have touched on that more rather than just showing us, look, he has kids, he has another kid, cool. Then we see Steven presenting his theories of of physics and his theories of black holes and whatever it was. I can't remember exactly what it was. His his theories of, you know, being a cool physicist to a room full of non-disabled lectury dudes. And, man, did I have feelings about that. Presenting my ideas to able-bodied people is how I pay the bills. And talking about my disability and my life. I'm not as cool as Stephen Hawking talking about the relativity of time or any of that stuff, but I certainly have been the only disabled person in a room before talking about my experiences of being disabled, and that can be really hard when you are doing that to make a living, especially when you are marked as a wheelchair user showing off your your wares as a disabled person. That can be really hard to do and to present those workshops. And I've definitely, I do that, and I I love doing that to pay the bills, but it, it can be really hard sometimes. Also, if you want me to come speak at your college or university or wherever it is over the next few months, I would love to work with you and consider going to andrewgerza.com to hire me to speak to you about disability. TM, TM, plug, 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 hire me. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> so... Then, one of the professors calls Stephen the little one, while also praising his ideas. They're listening to his relativity of black holes and blah, blah. And he goes, oh, the little one's got it. The little one understands. And I think all of us who are disabled and are are watching this scene have felt this weird kind of condescension in those moments where they are praising us while simultaneously telling us that we're small or not as big or not as important and that certainly certainly felt like what was happening here then the next scene is he's hanging out with his mates downtown they're going drinking and they're playing and his friends are pushing him around in his wheelchair and his best friend Brian says hey um so like your motor mouth disease doesn't affect your ability to you know and Stephen says, what? Obviously knowing where his friend's going to go. But he's like, it doesn't affect your ability to, you know, you and Jane can. And he goes, no, mate. Completely different systems. Don't worry. Don't worry. It's fine. He goes, oh, that's great. Good. And then they keep going on and being friends. And that's it. Um, and, you know, how many times have I told my friends about my sex life and had to explain it that way and make a joke and just keep going? But I think... Those are the conversations that I love having because it makes people think about sexuality and disability differently when you just talk about it quickly and off the cuff like it's nothing and don't make it this big deal and don't make it this big thing necessarily. But um, I like that they put that in there because those are the questions that people have and they never get it really answered. It's sort of beautiful watching Stephen and his friends in the movie and his friends being willing 
to help him go upstairs and to carry him and to do all these things because a lot of people would be wary to do that and would be wary to engage in a friendship with somebody like that because they're afraid. And so to see his friends just kind of take up the task, again, very rare, but I'm glad we saw it there because it shows other able-bodied people watching that if you want to be with a severely disabled person, you're going to have to provide some care. Then the next scene, we see Stephen and his kids surprise him and Jane, and they surprise him with an electric wheelchair. And I'm sure at the time, this must have been an extraordinary thing to see, to 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 witness um, back in the day, chairs like that. I'm sure it must have been so cool. But also another reminder that your disability is headed this way, and that was probably hard for him too. Then we see Jane having to do the day-to-day care for Stephen and the kids and manage all this, and that can be a lot to manage. And I think they make a point about how difficult it can be to take care of a disabled person and be the breadwinner and do all these things and blah, 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 blah. It can be really hard to manage, and I'm glad they showed it. And one one of the things that Jane, the real um, Jane Hawking, said about and I was going to read this later, but I'll read it now because it's important. Jane Hawking said, I'm sorry to say that none of these extensive travels with all the organizing, packing for a family, packing for a family with a severe disabled member, transporting them, driving them, as well as the usual day-to-day care, really appears in the theory of everything. And she said this back in 2018, so only about five or six years ago. And so they don't really, they didn't do a great job, according to her, about depicting what it was to take care of somebody fully. And I think that movies need to really depict this way more than they do. At one point in the film, Stephen starts choking and he can't breathe and she has to help him and Jane has to help him from, you know, choking to death. And I always make the point jokingly in my social media and just with friends that... Because of my specificity, because of CP, I'll probably die from choking. And I only hope that I choke on something I can enjoy. (laughs) Wink, wink. But truly and honestly, the idea of choking because of my disability terrifies me. I'm really scared of it. I'm really afraid to die from choking. And to see these things, to see a scene like this portraying a disabled character actually choking was really close to the bone for me, to be honest. Then Jane goes to choir and uh, meets the choir teacher, who you can immediately tell they have a spark. He comes over to their house one night and uh, helps their son, helps Stephen and Jane's son learn piano. And you can see there's a flicker of flirtation from Jane to the piano teacher, and you can tell there's something there for sure. Um, And then the next scene is Stephen says he understands if Jane needs help, if, if she needs somebody to help take care of him and the kids, he understands and he's okay. And you think that he's just saying she can hire somebody to, to help. But if you look at the undertones of this, I felt like there was so much undertone to this comment. Almost as if he were suggesting that if Jane wanted to go find somebody else to be with, she could go. 
And then I guess they hire the piano teacher whose name is Jonathan. And there's a montage of Jonathan and the family doing things and helping Stephen and carrying Stephen to places and feeding him and doing that kind of stuff. And it is really sweet that um, he's helping them and they do have that support for a little bit. And then, of course, to make things more dramatic, um, Jane realizes that she might be falling for the piano teacher, that she might have feelings for him, of course. And I felt like this was a bit annoying because, of course, she would see that Stephen's Steven's needs are too much and then go running into the arms of the able-bodied guy that could take care of himself. And, I, like, how many times have we seen this trope in disability film? It's everywhere. It's in every film. Um... So then Jane tells Jonathan that she's pregnant with a child. And he says, oh, I assume that you and Stephen couldn't. And again, this just shows how people think about sex and disability and how there's such an overarching assumption um, that we can't have sex. Um, and so then Jonathan and Jane confess their feelings to each other. And like I said a second ago, to see this as a disabled viewer is altogether frustrating because, of course, Jane would fall for the able-bodied help. Of course. And then Stephen goes to Jonathan and says, look, Jane needs your help. We need you. Can you come help? So again, I feel like he, I feel like Stephen knows that his body is deteriorating a little bit and he knows that they need help but he also knows that maybe maybe Jane should look somewhere else and he also knows that maybe he wants her to be happy in, in that way and to me it just felt like he was giving her permission to feel that way and to have those feelings then Stephen goes to the opera and is invited to some opera in France and he's there. Uh, he's there with a care worker. One of the, I think, I th or no, he's there with students from his school. And he starts choking on, and he's choking and coughing up blood. And these scenes were hard to watch for me as a disabled person, a severely disabled person, because again, all the times when you're in public and you're at a big show and something happens. In my case, if I poop myself or if some big thing occurs. It, it's really hard to hold yourself together when you have to stop doing something publicly as a disabled person and receive medical attention. It's always really, like, hard. And so we see in the scene that EMS is there and the ambulance guy is there and all these people are there, and it's hard to hold yourself together when this stuff happens. And so Jane rushes to the hospital to be with him. The doctors say that they think that she should disconnect him from life support, that he isn't going to live much longer, they're not sure how long he's going to live, and the best thing for her would be to disconnect him from life support. And again, because our medical system is so fucked up around disabled folks, I thought how many of, how many family members of disabled people were told to just let them go, let them just be done. How many of us who are disabled, how many family members of disabled people have were told that and never told their disabled family member because of how horrible it is to hear that. I wonder. So the docs say to Jane that the only way that Stephen will survive 
is if he has a tracheotomy, which means they basically put a hole in his trachea so he can't talk, but he can breathe. And any of my any of my trach friends out there, obviously, trachs have progressed much differently than than the sixties and seventies. And people who use trachs now, some of them can talk. I know. And if you excuse me, if you're out there and you use a trach, I want to hear from you. Trach life. Let's talk about it. After Stevens in the hospital, Jonathan. The piano man says he has to take a step back from Jane and his friendship because obviously they, Stephen and her have to, you know, figure stuff out again. Stephen gets the tracheotomy and you you see a lot of medical jarring scenes of him getting, almost getting his throat cut, which I didn't feel like he needed to be there and was very jarring to watch as a disabled person again. I don't want to see what's happening to me. I wanted to just be done. Um, and... When he was getting the tracheotomy, you could see the fear in his eyes. And I know a little bit the fear he must be feeling from losing the physical ability to do something. When you lose function, that fear is absolutely devastating. And I have certainly had that fear myself. So then the next scene is we see we see Stephen and Jane in the hospital. And Jane tries to use a letter board or a bliss board with Stephen. And if you don't know what a letter board is... It's basically a board full of all the letters and you can use blinking or pointing or other ways to, to show somebody what letters you mean so you can spell words so you can communicate. And there's Jane says to him, okay, you have to use this board and if you blink it green, then, you, then it means these group of letters and if you blink it pink, it means these group of letters and if you blink it black, it means this. And it was really, even to watch that scene for a minute, was really, really confusing. And if you're watching that scene right now, didn't you find it confusing to see that scene? Wow. Um, but I loved that they showed other communication formats like this, like bliss boards, because anybody who uses a letter board or a bliss board in this scene, if you're watching that and you do have that kind of communication, I hope you feel seen that way. Stephen gets his robotic voice, his iconic robotic voice. And fun fact, I was reading about the movie. Uh, they didn't like the one they were using during production. So Stephen authorized and licensed his real voice as the, or the, his real robotic voice as the one that we use, they use in the film. So that's cool. It really is his voice. That's pretty awesome. I wonder how much that cost them to use. Probably a ton of money. I wonder. So he gets his voice and you can see him like you can see them say like, oh, he's British. It's American. Like, what's the deal? And the guy was like, oh, there's only one voice then. And for the time, I'm sure that was true. But now if he wanted a different voice, I'm sure he could have like Siri or Alexa or other or Cortana or other ones that can do different things. And even with Siri, you can have British. My Siri is British. My series of British Lady. Um, so I'm sure now if you wanted to have an electronic voice or needed to have an electronic voice for communication, you could have many different options, which I think is pretty cool. So then they hire another helper for Stephen. Her name's Elaine. She's his helper and his nurse. Um, and you can sense 
that Jane is obviously jealous of her. Jane has some issues with her. You can feel that as they like, as they talk to each other. Whenever they're in a scene together, it's very tense. Um, and I found it interesting that she can, she Jane is allowed to fall in lust with Jonathan, the piano man, and have this big moment, this side story with Jonathan, the piano man. But Stephen is not allowed to be flirty and he can he's not allowed to have somebody dote on him I found that weird um and then at one point the next scene is Stephen and his aide Elaine are in the office and she finds a penthouse magazine and she opens it for him and she's like oh do you want this page do you want this page and they show a bit of like the saucy stuff inside and you can see them flirting a little bit and you can see them like having a, a cute moment together and that is immediately juxtaposed with the tension between Jane and Elaine throughout the whole, like, last 20 minutes of the movie. They have a lot of tension. Then one night, Stephen, tell, Stephen tells um, Jane that Elaine is going to travel with him to America because he's won some award. And you can tell that he has trepidation in telling her this because he doesn't want to disappoint her he doesn't he doesn't want her to feel less than and I think that can be present when you have multiple people doing your care and taking care of you regardless of whether or not there's a romantic or flirtatious element when you have main people doing your care and then you go to choose someone else I always feel like I'm hurting them if I choose someone else I'm making a big mistake if I choose someone else um, and juggling those feelings can be really hard. For me as a disabled person, anyway. I wonder how any of you who receive care, do you feel that way? Let me know. So then right after he tells her this, that he's going to America with Elaine, the new helper, Jane tells Stephen that she did love him, that she did her best, that she wants to be with him, but... I guess it's done now and they, they very quickly divorce. The next scene is you see workmen taking down um taking down boxes and they're moving they're moving one of them out. I'm not sure if it was Jane or Stephen, but one of them's not staying. Ironically enough, this whole scene where it's like a loving goodbye was never the truth. The truth of the matter was it was a big drag-out fight, and they fought a lot about it. And according to Jane Hawking's book, Stephen Hawking was a bit of an asshole around it. and wasn't very kind. So this dramatic license they took to make it this sweet story, again, shows the ableism of, like, disabled people can be fucking assholes, and I think we need to show that sometimes. I kind of find it funny that in the film, and if you've watched up to this point, she says she's done her best, we're done, but what they failed to forget, because they want to make a movie that's going to win an Oscar, right? So they don't show him as a as a villainous character. They don't show him as somebody that has, not even a villain, but they don't show him Stephen Hawking as somebody who has flaws, who fucked up, who did the wrong thing, who was an asshole. And I think they need to show that more on film. I think we need to see that nuance more in depictions of disability and they didn't do that here because they made Jane out to be the villain and everything I read about Jane after the fact was that 
Steven was a fucking prick to her, and she. It sounds like she didn't deserve a lot of the stuff that he threw at her, which kind of makes him sound like a dickbag, to be honest. Then one of the last scenes is Stephen is at a lecture some years later. I think by that point it's like the eighties or something. Like, and Stephen is at a lecture and he sees somebody drop their pen and he imagines himself walking off stage getting out of his wheelchair and picking up a pen that falls on the floor. And I I wonder how many of us on the days when we have felt trapped by our mobility aid, because I know that we all want to think of our mobility aid as freeing, and I see this on social media all the time where people will say stuff like, oh, my disability aid is is freeing me. Fuck, I've said it too multiple times because I know what the importance of that narrative is. But... To also, there are days where, to speak of the nuance, there are days where you just feel fucking trapped. And sometimes I really do feel trapped in my body, in my wheelchair, in my disability. And I have envisioned what it would be like to get up and literally touch grass. And so I think this scene was important because all of us have been there, but I think Dramaturgically and from an audience perspective, this scene could be damaging because it it underlies the assumption that all of us want to be walking all the time. All of us with severe disabilities want to be walking all the time. And that's not always true. And I think from an uneducated audience around disability, that creates a problem. So then Stephen and Jane go to meet the Queen so he can talk about getting a knighthood which he declines why would you decline a knighthood that's so cool I would not decline a knighthood I would take the knighthood definitely and then the movie ends with a montage of all his moments through time and that's it and it's about two hours and three minutes um, and that's it and that's the movie I think that I have feelings about the way it was done I didn't love it, I didn't hate it, but if I was to rate it, if I was to give it a Popcorn and Power Chairs rating of, I would say I'm going to give it 3.5 Power Chairs out of 5. That's my rating for the show. And every week when we do a movie, I'm going to rate it out of Power Chairs. Um, That's my rating, 3.5 Power Chairs. Alright friends, well that's the first episode of Popcorn and Power Chairs. A new little side series that'll be part of Disability After Dark. I hope you loved it. I love doing it. Please send in your recommendations for movie reviews, TV show reviews, media reviews that I should cover. Let me know what you want me to review on the next Popcorn and Power Chairs. But I already have the next one figured out, actually. I'm going to do a classic movie. And I'm going to ask the question, is this movie a disability film? Who knows? So stay tuned for that next week. Or no, I'm sorry, not next week. Uh, In two weeks, because I'm the one that produced this, so I should know. Every, Every week that you're not hearing a main Disability After Dark episode, you'll hear popcorn and shower and popcorn and... I almost said popcorn and shower chairs. Popcorn and power chairs. You'll hear that. So every other week. So in two weeks, get ready for Popcorn Power Chairs. 
episode two. Thanks, friends. Bye.